Waverly, Iowa, June 1971. 14-year-old Valerie Klosowski was strangled and murdered. Then in November 1975, Julie Benning would disappear, only to be found murdered in March 1976. She also had been strangled. Months later, in September of 1976, one more girl would fall victim to the series of murders, when 19-year-old Lisa Peek would be found in a roadside ditch, strangled. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 3, The Waverly Three, Part 3, Lisa Peek. Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of Midwest Mystery Files. Just a few quick notes before we begin. This is where I have been saying we're a weekly podcast. However, I have decided I will most likely start publishing bi-weekly for at least a little while. I had hoped to stay weekly, but with being a father and working a full-time job, I feel I have been rushing these episodes to get them out weekly, and I want to make sure I am thoroughly researching and putting out the best content I can for listeners, and most importantly, that I am able to be as thorough as I can for the sake of the victims I cover. I also plan to start doing some episodes that will occasionally cover two separate cases that do not have enough information to fill a single episode. That being said, Midwest Mystery Files is a bi-weekly podcast covering unsolved missing and murdered cases located within the Midwestern United States. I can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Audible, and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, without further delay, on to today's case. Maria Lisa Peek, who would go by Lisa, was born December 10, 1956, to Mary and Frank Peek. Frank was a Knoxville, Iowa councilman and veterinarian. Lisa would be the oldest of the couple's five children, giving Lisa two younger brothers and two younger sisters. Not much other information is available about Lisa's early life until about 1975, when she would graduate high school and begin attending Wartburg College in Waverly to major in journalism. It was during her freshman year that Lisa would become the victim in what a majority of reports have called a bizarre sex and extortion ring. John J. Carmody, a used car salesman from Mason City, Iowa, conned and blackmailed no less than 15 women into sex by threatening violence, claiming mob connections, and taking pictures of the women in compromising positions, which he would then use to threaten the release of if the women did not keep quiet. Despite these threats, Lisa would still go to the police, and in May of 1976, Carmody would be sentenced to 40 years for rape and assault. His mob connections were quickly ruled out as a ruse he had concocted. This situation, however, would not slow Lisa down any. Rumors would quickly spread of Lisa's involvement in the ring, and she would later tell Des Moines Register reporter Chuck Offenberger, quote, Some people asked me about it, and I would say, yes, it was me, but it's all over now, end quote. Clearly not allowing the situation to define her as a person, Lisa would spend her May term of her freshman year working as a reporter for the Clarksville Star in nearby Clarksville, and in the summer of 1976, she set her aspirations higher by planning to write a book about her experience in the John Carmody sex and extortion ring. Lisa would partner with Chuck Offenberger to write the book, and on August 23, 1976, the two would write John Carmody in prison of their intentions, and they were offering to allow him to tell his side of the story as well. John Carmody would decline. Speaking through his attorney, he stated that he and his own writing team would be releasing their own book. If that book was ever written, I can't find a record of it, which is a shame, as I'm sure it was a truthful and unbiased account of the whole situation. 
Lisa would return to Wartburg College in Waverly over the 1976 Labor Day weekend to start her sophomore year. On Monday, September 6th, Lisa informed some friends that she was running out to do a few errands and would be back by the evening. The afternoon plodded on and evening would come with no signs of Lisa. As the night got later and Lisa hadn't returned, her friends grew more concerned, and shortly after midnight, they reported her missing to the Waverly Police. Little did they know, less than 12 hours later, they would learn the tragic reason she had never returned home. On September 7th, around 11 a.m., Farmer John Annault would be out walking his property, located just a quarter mile north of Waverly on a gravel road, when he would come across a terrifying discovery. Annault would discover the nude, beaten body of Lisa Peake, laying face down under a cottonwood tree, right off the gravel road. Like Valerie Klosowski and Julie Benning before her, an autopsy would later conclude that she had been strangled, and like Valerie, her neck had been broken from the force. The autopsy would also conclude that Lisa had been sexually assaulted, and her clothes could not be found at the scene. Authorities wasted little time springing into action. Just as Julie Benning's murder investigation had started to become cold, there was now a new murder with similar circumstances on authorities' plate. Officers from the Bremer County Sheriff's Office, Waverly Police Department, and the Bureau of Criminal Investigation all began to follow leads and talking to potential witnesses. The obvious angle almost everyone thought of right away was Lisa's connection to the sex and extortion ring and her integral role in bringing it down. However, authorities were quick to rule this possibility out, as John Carmody was believed to have ran the whole scheme alone, and any mob or crime connections he claimed were proven false. Outside of Carmody, Chuck Offenberger stated in his September 9th Des Moines Register article that Lisa had informed him that at least one victim of the extortion ring had contacted Lisa, telling her that she loved Carmody and followed that up with threats against Lisa. Police never commented on the woman, but if she was ever spoken to, one can assume she was ruled out rather quickly. Investigators were pretty clear on one thing right away. They were positive the murders of Lisa Peake and Julie Benning were connected. Both Lisa and Julie had been strangled, found in the nude, and discarded on rural routes, with Julie being found only six miles to the west of where Lisa had been found. Unfortunately, though, that's all they had to go on. Like Julie, Lisa seemingly vanished into thin air before being found murdered. While Lisa had pushed on after her incident with John Carmody and didn't let that hold her back, she was still alert and weary of strangers, with her mom telling the Des Moines Register, quote, I cannot believe that Lisa would get into a car with anyone she did not know, end quote. The first possible, yet likely coincidental, lead came after the first few days. In a September 10th Des Moines Register article, Bremer County attorney Paul Riffle acknowledged that a shoe angle was being looked at. If you recall from the last episode, at the time, the last rumored sighting of Julie Benning was at a shoe store in Waverly. It was eventually revealed that Lisa had informed her friends that she was picking up a pair of shoes as part of her errands list the afternoon she disappeared. Whether or not a particular shoe store or any other similarities were driving this angle was never really made clear. With the belief that Lisa and Julie's murders were connected and not wanting the culprit to strike again, attorney Paul Riffle confirmed in a September 11th article with the Des Moines Register that investigators had enlisted the help of the FBI. Evidence and all pertinent information had been sent to Washington, D.C. in hopes that the FBI could study it to create a potential psychological profile of the killer. This would mark the first time the Iowa BCI had enlisted the FBI's help in creating a profile. Rumors would soon surface that the murder site of Lisa had been uncovered. 
A televised news report would claim that it had been uncovered that Lisa had been murdered at a house near the Wartburg College campus before being removed and transported to the spot where she had been found. Attorney Riffle would be quick to dispel this claim, telling the Associated Press, There's no basis for saying we found the place where the girl was murdered. We certainly haven't said that. Information on the investigation would remain scarce until November of 1976. Little information from the psychological profile the FBI came up with has been released. But just prior to Thanksgiving, authorities decided to release one piece of information. That the culprit may in fact be a holiday killer. This is prompted by the fact that Julie Benning had disappeared the day after Thanksgiving, and Lisa had been murdered on Labor Day. Attorney Riffle did however state, quote, Granted that both murders occurred during holiday periods, it is difficult to determine how much significance should be put on that, end quote, implying that making the information public was just so citizens know to possibly take extra precautions around Thanksgiving. It was also acknowledged that most citizens had already made the connection themselves anyway. In summer of 1977, investigators, hitting a dead end, would attempt a new angle by enlisting the help of Greta Alexander, a self-proclaimed psychic from Illinois who had assisted with various police investigations around the country. Now, I won't go into my feelings of so-called psychics who become involved in investigations. I'll just let Bremer County Sheriff Bill Wessendorf's comment to the Des Moines Register speak for itself. Quote, the information we received from her has not materialized in any evidence being obtained by us. Most of what she told us could have been obtained from newspapers, although she did come up with things that hadn't been in the papers. She said some of it might help us, but it hasn't so far. End quote. I can barely contain my shock. The case would sit quiet until 1979, when 25-year-old Michael Moses was arrested for the murder of two Waterloo, Iowa women. Moses was looked at as a potential suspect in the murders of Julie Benning and Lisa Peake. He would eventually be convicted of the Waterloo murders, but was ultimately ruled out as a suspect in the Waverly slayings. This was the last major movement in the case until 2010. In May of 2010, Lisa Peake's body was exhumed in hopes that maybe, with new advancements in science and DNA, there was hope that new leads could be drawn up. Bremer County Attorney Casey Wadding would tell the press, quote, we thought it may be worthwhile to re-examine. You can recover evidence after a long period of time. End quote. Unfortunately, it would be found that Lisa's coffin had become too broken down and water had gotten in, destroying any chance of usable evidence being found. In the last 11 years since Lisa's body was exhumed, there have been no other major updates in her case. Her parents have both passed away, never getting to see justice for their beloved daughter. While all murders are terrible, it feels like an extra layer has been added here. A young, beautiful, intelligent woman is forced into a sex and extortion ring by a disgusting sleaze bag. She then musters up the courage to go to the police, freeing herself and several other women from the deranged scheme. Not letting that incident deter her, she sets her sights even higher by not letting shame get in the way and decides to write a book on the whole matter. It's clear to me that she obviously had the knack to go on to be a great investigative journalist, bringing one scheme down before she ever even had a career. Unfortunately, that potential career would never get to come to fruition, and all her dreams and ambitions would be destroyed in a moment. A moment where a sick and twisted individual decided to rape her and take her life. Now we're only left with an empty space where this brave soul once was, and we're left to wonder what could have been. Even John Carmody got to live his life eventually.
He would be paroled in 1986 due to overcrowding, reoffend again in 1990, when he would be convicted of sleeping with a 15-year-old girl. That conviction would earn him a 25-year sentence. However, he would be released in 2001, spending the next eight years in a treatment center for sex offenders before moving to Texas in 2009. While he may not have been a free man during most of that time, he got to live. He got to live while one of the women that survived him was viciously murdered. Hardly fair justice in my book. Lisa Peake's case, much like the cases of Valerie Klosowski and Julie Benning, is hard to look at and examine. If you remember back to previous episodes, Valerie Klosowski disappeared off the streets of Waverly in 1971. She had accompanied her friend to the pool, never entered the pool, and was sighted on at least two occasions away from the pool. Then, she was ultimately found murdered two days later. She had been strangled with all of her clothes except her shirt missing. She was discovered on a creek bed below a gravel bridge, approximately 10 miles south of where she had disappeared. Julie Benning disappeared the day after Thanksgiving in 1975. Initial reports had her seen walking up the street in Waverly, and as well as a rumored sighting of her in a shoe store, with the man coming forward years later with an unconfirmed report that he saw Julie taken from the Sir Lounge where she was employed. Prior to that, it had always been stated that she had never even arrived for work. Julie would be found in March of 1976, nude and strangled. She had been stuffed in a culvert on a rural route, about six miles from where she disappeared. Lisa was found naked, strangled, and on a rural route just north of Waverly. We know the similar outcome of all three, but unfortunately, we don't know the final build-up to any of them. Before I talk about any tentative connections between the three murders, I do want to talk about Lisa Peak and John Carmody. Authorities were quick to denounce any connection between Lisa's murder and John Carmody, and while it probably is unlikely the murder was orchestrated by him, it's still an angle you have to look at. Authorities' main reason for ruling Carmody out was that he essentially worked alone in his scheme. From everything I can tell, Lisa never made mention of anyone else. However, that doesn't rule out the possibility that Carmody had a friend with whom he could trust to pull off such a heinous act. The nature of Lisa's murder does rule out the likelihood of any sort of professional. They generally do their job and leave. They don't take the time to rape the victim along with killing them. Some random lackey hired by Carmody probably wouldn't have the same reservations, though. Either way, I find either scenario highly unlikely. Carmody was sentenced in May. Lisa was murdered in September. Carmody would have either had to arrange the murder before being convicted, or would have had to organize it from prison. While neither move was impossible, I find them unlikely. Carmody was a used car salesman, not the mafia member he claimed to be. He most likely didn't have the resources to pull off such a move in prison, and I just can't see an arrangement working where he would pay someone to do a murder before going in prison, and then trusting it would get done months later. We then have to consider the alleged threats that Lisa received from one of Carmody's victims. While it's possible another woman could have beaten Lisa, strangled her with enough force to snap her neck, and then used some sort of foreign object to sexually assault her, I also find this highly unlikely. It would be more likely that said woman would also had to have entrusted another male individual to do the deed, and at this point I feel like we might be starting to stretch just a little bit. That leaves us with an individual with no connection to Carmody who saw an opportunity to abduct, rape, and murder Lisa Peake. This seems like the most logical scenario to me. As stated before, this definitely reads more like an act of an individual acting on his own accord and not at the beck and call of somebody else. 
This leaves us with our last question. Are the murders of Valerie Klosowski, Julie Benning, and Lisa Peake connected? At face value, it certainly seems to be that way. All three were young women. All three resided in Waverly. All three were strangled. All three were found naked or partially naked. And all three were found on rural routes. The only thing we really don't know is if all three were sexually assaulted. Lisa Peake being the only one where the act was confirmed. In terms of Julie Benning, the decomposition probably kept that question from being definitively answered. And with Valerie, they may have kept it quiet due to her still being a minor or to protect the integrity of the investigation. While acknowledging that I certainly don't know the answer, I'm going to say that due to how they were all found, I find it likely all three were probably assaulted. Now, let's take a look at the differences. The biggest being the age and time difference. Valerie Klosowski was 14 and was murdered in 1971. Julie Benning was 18 and murdered in 1975, while Lisa Peake was 19 and murdered less than a year later in 1976. To me personally, I feel that it's likely that Valerie's life was taken at the hands of a different individual than Julie and Lisa. Four years is a long time for a serial perpetrator to go in between murders. And while I was quick to say in Valerie's episode that it was most likely a local, that's not to say that they stuck around. Perhaps it was someone home from college for the summer who would go on to commit the same crimes elsewhere. Or maybe they just moved away shortly after Valerie's murder. Or, perhaps, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but something that's not purely out of the question. Maybe Valerie did come across someone who was out looking to have a good time with her, started to go too far, and in a moment of uncontrollable rage, strangled her to death. He then hastily threw her body off the bridge and went to live on with his secret, never killing again. Like I said, it's pure speculation, but it's not an unheard of scenario. Fast forward to 1975 and 1976. You have Julie and Lisa, both young and attractive women who both essentially disappeared off the streets and were both murdered in less than a year's time. I can believe that there were two different stranglers in a four to five year period, but not two different stranglers in less than a year. Even in the most populous locations, multiple unconnected strangulation murders aren't exactly common in small periods of time. The only thing we don't know is how they were taken. In Julie's episode, I took some time to analyze the story told by an unnamed witness who had came forward 40 years later to say he saw Julie taken from the front lobby of her job when it had always been reported that she never arrived for work in the first place. While it's important to remember that while even Julie's sister believes it, this story is unconfirmed. However, if it did happen, it's likely someone brazen enough to kidnap a young woman from her occupied place of work would have no quarrel snatching Lisa off the street or out of a store parking lot as well. If the story didn't actually happen, well, someone who was brave enough to snatch Julia off the street is also going to be brave enough to grab Lisa off the street. These points, along with the close proximity of where the bodies were found, leads me to strongly believe that Julie and Lisa's murders are most likely connected. I will note that I don't put much stock in the holiday killer theory. There were multiple big name holidays for them to strike after murdering Julie. Labor Day just doesn't seem like the next most logical holiday for someone following that sort of pattern. It most likely was when they had just found the opportunity and courage to strike again. Three girls, three young women, two barely into adulthood, and one who barely got to live her teenage years, all taken in acts of cold and cruel malice, then discarded on roadsides like they were nothing. All three showed great promise, 
and 50 years later we still have no idea who took that promise from them. If you have any information on the murders of Valerie Klosowski, Julie Benning, or Maria Lisa Peek, please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation at 712-258-1920 or contact the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation at 515-725-6010. If you wish to look into any more information on the Waverly Stranglings, there are several blog posts out on the web. You can also visit www.iowacoldcases.org where you can find case summaries as well as several modern articles as well as many articles from the 1970s that were key in the making of these first three episodes. If you wish to tell me what you think happened or just want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, or search Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. You can also email me theories, case suggestions, questions, and comments at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I want to sincerely thank everyone who has listened so far and plan to continue to listen. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and review. It helps to make the show more visible and brings more exposure to these cases. Thanks to those who have done so already. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you all next time.